This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're receiving dispatches from foreign lands, specifically from two African countries, Congo and Malawi. My guest in the studio today is Brian Mueller. For several years, Mueller worked as a foreign correspondent, mostly for the Associated Press, in the Central African nation, Congo. His book about his experiences there is All Things Must Fight to Live, Stories of War and Deliverance in Congo. It's out now from Bloomsbury. Later on in the show, we'll visit with two filmmakers who traveled to Malawi to look at the effects of AIDS on women there. But first, I welcome Brian Mueller to the studio a few weeks ago. We talked about his book, about his experiences in Congo, and frankly, he educated me a little about a place that I, along with most other Americans, knew almost nothing about. I started out by asking Mueller how he came to be in Congo in the first place. I was working in a magazine here in New York City. I was at Esquire magazine, and uh, it was 2003, and along with my girlfriend, we moved to Nairobi, Kenya. I was going to be a freelance reporter there. I had every intention of doing more safe stuff. I was going to go and cover the great migration across the Serengeti and these wonderful travel stories and go to Ethiopia and Eritrea and these exotic places uh, like Zanzibar. Ended up meeting the Associated Press Bureau Chief in Nairobi, and uh, one day I just came in to say hi, and she let me use the emails and stuff like that. And uh, she asked me if I'd ever been to Congo and if I knew anything about Congo. And I said, no, I I didn't. And she told me that there had been a massacre there that a few days before, and about a 1,000 people had been murdered in about three hours' time and uh, handed me a plane ticket and said, uh, just tag along to see how these guys work, and I'm sure you can sell the story somewhere. And uh, so there it is, and I'm just kind of climbing back out of there since. So you didn't start out sort of wanting to be like an adventure reporter? There was that glamour of being maybe a war reporter, conflict reporter, but that was, I think, mostly in theory. And I figured I would just go to Africa, and uh, that would kind of fill that need. But, um, no, I had no no intention of, of covering war and ended up backing right into one. So tell me what was going on when you got to Congo. When I got to Congo, it was uh, the last phases of the big war. It was that lasted from 98 to uh, 2003, and... At its peak, the Congolese War sucked in about seven African armies, uh, and these people largely financed their stay through minerals that are very abundant in Congo. Congo is one of the wealthiest nations in all of Africa. Uh, there's copper and cobalt and gold and diamonds, timber, and a, and a mineral called coltan, which is used to make the chips and cell phones and laptop computers. At the time, one of the fronts of the war was in a place called Aturi, which is a, a small little district um, up near the Ugandan border. Uh, Uganda was one of the uh, the invading armies of Congo, along with Rwanda. At the time, Uganda, under a deal with the UN, was getting uh, ready to withdraw all their forces. While they had been there since '98, they had really uh, hit these gold fields, and they were really taking a lot of gold out there, pumping about $60 million in gold out of Congo a year. What they would do is they would use these local tribal militias to hold uh, control over these gold fields. And these two tribes are called the Hema and the Lindu up there. The Hema and the Lindu were, had since turned on one another for control of these gold fields as Uganda was leaving and hoping to really s- sweep in and fill this power vacuum in their, in their withdrawal. And so when I got up there to cover this massacre, which was uh, conducted by one of the Lindu militias on a Hema village, uh, it became very clear that as soon as the Ugandans were going to leave, um, which was about in two weeks' time, there was going to be another massacre there in the town of Bunya where I was. And, and uh, sure enough, that's what happened. 
So tell me a little bit about the history of the Congo. I have to say I was woefully ignorant on this, and I'm sure I'm not alone. No, I think a lot of people are, uh, don't really know about the Congo. Congo is, first of all, it's an incredibly enormous country. It's uh, three times the size of Texas, or it's about as big as the United States east of the Mississippi River, if you want to look at it in that way, or, or as big as Western Europe. The problems in Congo have, have completely been orchestrated by outsiders since the beginning. Portuguese explorers founded it in you know the 1600s and started taking slaves out of there at a rapid rate. Late 1800s, when the uh, the Belgians came in, they started pumping out the ivory and the rubber out of Congo. Congo was a Belgian colony throughout 1950s, 40s, and then 1960 uh, was given its independence. When Belgium pulled out of there, uh, they had maybe less than a dozen trained lawyers and doctors, you know, probably less than 20 college-educated Congolese. And so, not surprisingly, once the Belgians left, the country went into chaos. By 1965, uh, Mobutu Seseko, who was, at the time, was a uh, in the army, was an army uh, sergeant, he took over the country and had the country until 1997, when the rebel forces, uh, sponsored by Uganda and Rwanda, overthrew him and put in a rebel leader, uh, Laurent Kabila. Laurent Kabila subsequently alienated a lot of his Rwandan staff that put him in power. And so in 98, Uganda and Rwanda invaded again. And that's what caused this big war. And to date, they're still fighting in the east with these little militia forces against the UN and Congolese forces. And since 98, uh, the International Rescue Committee is an American aid group, guesses that about 5.4 million people have been killed. And that's more than any other conflict since World War II. And these people aren't dying from brutality or by combat deaths or anything like that, but they're dying really in obscurity from uh, disease and hunger. And, you know, you have entire villages just running into the bush and just they start dying of, of malaria and cholera and drinking dirty water, you know. And that's where we are today in Congo. Why was this happening? I mean, I, I know there's mm-hmm. tribal problems that are exacerbated, by, but why? I mean, it's so brutal. The, the current problems right now in the war in 98, that was started really as a result of the, of the Rwandan genocide next door to Congo. Um, in 1994, maybe a million Tutsi people were, were murdered in, in Rwanda. And the Hutu genocidaires, the Rwandan Hutu genocidaires that orchestrated this genocide, then fled into the mountains of Congo across the border. These are very dense areas. Uh, there's no roads. And they just kind of set up camp in these places, and they started raping people and they, women and, and taking over these villages and staging further attacks on Rwanda. 96, uh, Rwanda appealed to Mobutu, who was still the dictator then, to come in and, and do something about these guys, to drive them out, push them back toward Rwanda so they could be dispatched by the Rwandan army. Doing nothing, um, Rwanda invaded to kind of under the auspices of driving these people out themselves, and while they were at it, marched seven months across the jungle and overthrew Mobutu. So, as we know, in Rwanda, you know, the, the Tutsi were killed by the Hutu. The Tutsi and the Hutu are closely related to the Lindu and the Hema of Congo. The Hema are the cousins of, of the Tutsi. They traditionally have been kind of the land-owning, educated elite. Uh, they were given favor under the Belgians. That same preferential treatment carried over into Mobutu. And so in the last days of the Mobutu Empire, as his government was crumbling to dust, a lot of these Hema businessmen in Aturi, the Hema just started seizing up Lindu land. The Lindu could do nothing about it because all the deeds and everything were tied up in the Mobutu government, and the uh, and that was crumbling, and so they had no proof. 
the Lindu lost a lot of land in the late 90s. There was no way to get it back, so these Lindu formed vigilante groups and just started attacking. Enter Rwanda and Uganda into this war in 98, and they saw these existing tribal problems and just exploited them and started you know, uh, arming these two groups and uh, using them as to hold control over these diamond and gold fields. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio today is Brian Mueller. Miller was an AP correspondent in Congo, and his book about his experiences there is out now from Bloomsbury. It's called All Things Must Fight to Live, Stories of War and Deliverance in Congo. In a few minutes, we'll hear from filmmakers Doug Carr and Eddie Boyce. Their film The Face of AIDS documents the investigation by Fordham Law students of women and AIDS in Malawi. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Brian Miller. You mentioned that Congo is really an immense country, and one of the uh, main parts of the book is that in 2006 you went on this sort of incredible journey down the Congo River to cover elections in a remote mm-hmm. part of the country. Tell me about that. I, I worked in Congo most a lot of 2003. After that massacre, I kept going back. I eventually started stringing for the AP, and then I uh, came back to the States in 2004. In 2005, uh, I was hired by the AP to be a staff reporter there. I was based in Kinshasa and ended up uh, just covering largely the same stories. It was just kind of this endless cycle of just, just daily blood every day. And after a year of that, I, you know, I got kind of burned on it and I quit. I wanted to go back and, and just do bigger stuff and larger stories. I went to cover the elections the fo- in 2006, the following year. And I felt that this was my opportunity to... This was the pinnacle. Elections were the pinnacle ever since I'd been there. The, you know, the war was over in 2003. The power-sharing agreement that was a- arranged by the UN between the government and the rebel groups said that in 2005 they would have elections. and Well, that didn't happen. So in 2006, they finally organized the elections. And there had never been an election there ever. So really the UN and the EU and the Congolese government, they sent thousands of people by pirogue, hand-dug canoes, bicycles, motorbikes, helicopter, ferries, up to these river tributaries and and to the jungle paths and with election materials, and they registered these millions of people to vote, and it was monumental achievement. I'd never really gone into the country. I'd never gone up the Congo River. I'd I'd never seen, I'd only been to these massacre sites and these war zones, and so a few months later I came back, and I uh, I recreated this Joseph Conrad Heart of Darkness journey at the Congo River. That was a that story of the trip was kind of amazing because it just seemed like there were sort of three main steps. The first, you're on a comparatively luxurious mm-hmm. boat. Second, you're on this barge, which mm-hmm. is I think you have sort of a good time at first because the people are constantly partying and dancing. Mm-hmm. But then it sort of starts to hit critical mass, and you find maggots under your sleeping bag, <laughs> and there's all this disgusting yeah. stuff blowing around, <laughs> and you think, "Ugh, this is disgusting." The bikes will be much better, yeah. and then the bikes get stuck first in the mud, and then in some not entirely dry blacktop, and you end up having to drag them upside down. Yeah, it's just it was, and then did you get malaria? You were you were ill. Uh, I, I didn't get malaria. I thought I was getting malaria because we on that trip, it started out really difficult. You know, we'd had it was a pretty rough time on the barge with with all the people, and you know, there were five hundred people on this barge, and you know, one toilet. And looking back at it now, it wasn't that bad. We weren't in any danger or anything, but it was just it was uncomfortable. 
and we thought, yeah, once we get on the bikes, it's going to be great. And the bikes were really tough the first few days. And, uh, you know, I wasn't in the greatest shape to ride roughly what is 300 miles through a, through sand and mud through a jungle on a, on a bike with these bald tires that they kept breaking every, every step of the way. It was pretty funny at first and pretty fun at first. And then once we started running out of food and, and realizing that we were in this jungle, but a lot of these people didn't have any food. These people were starving too in the forest. It didn't get so funny after all. And we couldn't sleep at night because we'd roll up into these villages and it was just so hot. You know, I'd never been so hot in my life. And, uh, you know, we're just burning calories every day on these bikes, pedaling into these mud and the sand and these rivers. And so we're just starving and we get there and we go to bed just starving and, and hot. And then we, you know, there's bugs everywhere and we're getting flea bites. And so we can't sleep. And so after a while, you know, that starts to wear down on you. And we st- everybody, even the Congolese riders who are our, our porters, they start getting sick. Everybody was definitely worn down and a few of them were feverish. I had fever. I thought I was coming down with malaria again. I had it a, a few years before and we did find one village eventually that we had. Uh, there was just this bounty of food and we were able to eat and sleep and we found some sleeping pills along the way so we were able to uh, sleep each night. We hired a few more guys to and a couple more bikes so after a while um, we were able to just ride on the backs of these bikes and not have to pedal. Um, which the riders had been uh, begging us to do from the get-go because they thought we would slow us down. But I think, you know, our stupid pride, we wanted to pedal ourselves, you know, to say we did it. Of course, once we heeded their advice, things got much easier. And uh, But we were still out of food. And, yeah, it was just r- kind of rough overall. And, and even if I, I felt when I came home that even if I had seen any sort of revival or any signs of hope that I would have missed them anyway because... I think my own discomfort and, and my own hunger, and I was too hungry and tired to care if I'd even seen anything, you know. And that really upset me when I got home, and I felt this really sting of regret. But I ended up coming back uh, some months later and riding the trains across Congo, and that's the last chapter of my book. And, and there, finally, I found uh, this sort of glimmer of, of redemption in a way. So that was sort of, you were able to find some resolution in that? I was, yeah. I, uh... I found out that the old Belgian train lines, they were up and running again after the, for the first time since the war. And I'd always been really obsessed with these trains. When I, when I was working there, I think it was 2003, I'd seen one of these train yards in this little town called Kalimi. And you just saw these, you know, they're all rusted, but there were these beautiful uh, sleeping dining cars with these beautiful uh, kind of restaurant areas. And the guy who was there, the, the director of the trains, the trains were just being used by the rebels and, and the soldiers now to ferry guns and troops to the front lines. But he was telling me that at one time you could take a train from Congo all the way to South Africa and you could, you know, have a cold beer and a steak and you could watch the savannah. And, and it just seems like this wonderful thing. And so when I heard that they were actually going to bring these trains up and running again, I immediately went back and uh, we went and we waited for this train. And sure enough, we found the only Congo's only luxury express train and they were they were so proud to put it up on the rails and it was like this flag of revival I mean the trains was was named the Renove you know it was uh and so that name just alone suggested like you know this uh harbinger of hope and uh and it was that for a while but it was Congo and after a while uh you know the first class carriage um was full of chickens and pigs and uh the train derailed and we broke down about four times. It took us three times as long to get to Kalimi. But the most beautiful thing about that ride was I realized quite early that everybody aboard that train were war refugees who were coming home for the first time. So 
I started in Congo covering this massacre and covering this brutality and flight, people going into the bush and just dying. And here I was on this luxury express train, you know, however shabby it became, but it was full of people who were going home since 1998, 1997 to reconnect with their children they hadn't seen in 10 years or their mothers or to reclaim their jobs and just to start again. And and I I knew at that moment that I'd kind of, I'd come to the end of my story. Will you go back to Congo? I'd love to go back to Congo. I'd like to go back to Congo as a tourist someday. You know, the Belgians back in the 50s and 40s, I have, I have this crazy book. It's uh, the 1951 Traveler's Guide to the Belgian Congo. And uh, it's like uh, it's like another world. It's like a cartoon world. You open that, that book and compare it to the places that you're in. And, you know, back in the day, the, the Congo was this, uh, this sportsman's paradise. Uh, you could go there and go f- on fishing trips and go hunting and, uh, you know, go up to the, the volcano in Goma and... and uh, See you can see, see the, these volcanoes tours and you know there's gorillas, uh, uh, you know apes, not, not gorilla fighters, but there there are those gorillas too. But you could, um, yeah, you could, you can be a tourist there, and the the, the 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 scenery there is just stunning and breathtaking. Uh, I'd like to do that again, you know. And I I was so happy. There's a a group called Go Congo Tours who are now doing trips to the volcano, and they have a, a Congo River trip now. I think it's it's safe to do that now. Uh, to go up the Congo River. It's expensive and kind of a pain because you have to deal with some soldiers and stuff. But uh, you can do it. And, and if you're, uh, you know, hardy enough, and uh, there are these trips and these tour guys now that are taking these journeys. And uh, and I'd love to go back as a tourist and, and write about Congo as um, as a place to be visited and enjoyed uh, rather than, than, than documented. What are you doing now? Now I'm working on another book um, with this kid in Malawi who... Um, builds windmills out of old rusted tractor parts and recycled materials and powers his village. Uh, so his dream is to, uh, to to bring power and water, pump water all across Malawi um, with these windmills made of largely garbage. And uh, So uh, I, I think, and this, this kid, his name is William Kumkwamba, but uh, it's, a, it's a direct remedy, I think, to the, the book I just did. And and it's it's an example of of people uh, kind of taking responsibility for their for their own villages and and not waiting around for their governments or ineffectual governments to to save them. And uh, I think you're seeing a lot of that now in, in Africa. And uh, um, if we just can kind of just give these people a nice uh, push along, um, they they can do it. They want to do it. Everybody, I think it's in, intrinsic in every man. Every man wants to go to work and be paid. And everyone, you know, I think. That's universal. And so, uh, and people want to help themselves. They don't want to, you know, they don't want handouts. And uh, so it's a really, it's a nice, it's a nice uh, story to be covering now after coming off five years of Congo. Well, Brian Mueller was the Associated Press staff correspondent in Kinshasa, Congo, and his book is All Things Must Fight to Live, Stories of War and Deliverance in Congo, and it's out now from Bloomsbury. Brian Mueller, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, things you can do for free in New York City. That is ahead at 7.30. But first, every year a contingent from Fordham Law School's Joseph R. Crowley Program in International Human Rights takes a research trip. 
In 2007, the Crowley scholars went to Malawi to look at the effect that the AIDS epidemic is having on women there. They looked at the link between women's low social, cultural, and economic status and their heightened vulnerability to AIDS. Women make up 58 percent of the infected population in that country. Filmmakers Eddie Boyce and Doug Carr joined them on that trip, and their film The Face of AIDS documents the group's experiences there. I visited Boyce and Carr at their Lower East Side studio. Uh, my name's Edward Boyce. Hi, my name's Doug Carr. I looked at the film, and I spoke to them about their experiences in Malawi. 14% of the total population is estimated to be HIV positive. The president knows how the people are suffering. The government of Malawi considers that to be something like a million orphans in this country. I mean, women have been dying and dying and dying. In 2000, I had an opportunity to move to Africa, to Malawi, to make a documentary on HIV-AIDS, where I actually moved to the country for nine months and made a film there. We went on spec, but then when we came back, UNAIDS and the National Film Board of Canada paid to finish the film, and it had a nice little run, and and audiences got to see it a bit. And then uh, six years later... The folks at the Crowley Program, which is now the Leitner Center, invited Eddie and I to go to Malawi with them to make a new film. But going into Malawi, the first thing I noticed was there's one plane that flies into the country a day, and we're on it. And we're like 15 people, and there's probably about 20 people on the plane. So it's like that's the extent of the international... You know, like travel that's happening. There's like basically five people and us coming into the country in a given day. So you're immediately struck by like, wow, there's just not much going on here. Not a whole lot of commerce. Like how, you know, not a big economy happening. It's just, it's literally like being, it's like time travel. You, you know, you're you're going by and someone's job on the side of the road is breaking rocks with a hammer to make you know, big rocks into small rocks. The most obvious thing to say about a country like Malawi is that it is very poor. This seems a banal thing to say, but often everything comes back to that. Extreme poverty is defined as an income of less than one dollar a day. And most people in Malawi actually are lucky if they get anywhere near one dollar a day. Within this problem of poverty and underdevelopment, women have a lack of economic power. So they have very little control over their economic resources or really over their life decisions. They don't have control over the spacing of children, whether or not they're going to have children, the number of children. They can't make decisions about property. They own very little property. The men are in a position of power because they have the money and financial security and the women are not in a position to make demands. A number of the women that we've met with have said that they were faithful to their husbands and they never cheated on their husband and yet they found out that they were HIV positive before their husband did. One of the big problems there is property grabbing. So you'll have a woman who is finds out she's HIV positive or not and her husband is HIV positive and dies. And so if her husband dies, the in-laws, her like family, basically come and clear out the entire house. They just come and like pack everything up and take it away, including, you know, the glass in the windows. And so basically this woman who like chances are still has, you know, between 2 and 
12 children that she's taken care of. Could be the neighbor's children or her, you know, brother's children or whatever. Suddenly has zero possessions, a house that doesn't function, and no way to make any money. Men, uh, women are very poor. So when they saw foreigners, they knew that they have got a lot of money. Eh? When they ask them to make sex, they are easy to answer yes. Because if I said yes, I can get more money. So they do that sex. No protection, no condom, no what. Because three-quarters of women here, they are not working. What you're saying is that because of tourism, there are like foreigners that come, and a lot of women are selling sex, commercial sex. That's what you're saying? That is the very big, big problem here in Malawi. People in the rural areas have virtually no access to any kind of legal resources. So they live under um, a framework of customary law, which is developed and administered by local leaders and is itself very patriarchal. I mean, it was, it's just brutal to be a woman over in, in Malawi. You know, in the film, there's this young woman who speaks very eloquently to the simple reality of I make this much money um, and it's like a staggeringly large sum for uh, Malawians you know it's like you know put her like in the you know <laughs> the top percentile of the income you know earners over there uh, so that's obviously going to be uh, a temptation and that of course you know immediately puts you at a huge risk for contracting HIV over there. An important thing that I learned was how little responsibility men take for their sexuality. Again and again, we were told by women that their husbands didn't want to use condoms, they didn't want to be tested. And one of the main reasons nobody wants to use condoms is that they see that as potentially admitting that they might be HIV positive, which then leads to them potentially having fewer partners. If you suspect that your husband uh, has girlfriends, which is almost universally true, when you began to understand about HIV, how it was transmitted, um, and you knew that you were vulnerable to it, could you ask him to use a condom? And the answer almost always was no. I tested the positive in 1999, and what forced me to go for a test was that that time my husband was sick. His condition was deteriorating day by day. When I talked to him that we should go for a test, in the first place he refused. He said, if you want to go for a test, you can do it on your own. I don't have HIV. He refused. Then I said, now what do I do? I just decided that I should just not tell him where we are going. So I picked a taxi and took him on. He asked me, why have you decided that we should come here? He said, we have come here because we want to get tested. Then because we are right there, he wouldn't run away. And he was very weak. So we went in and get tested and we were told that we are both positive. I was fearing that if my friends at school discover that I'm positive, because I, by then I was a same school teacher, what would they say about me? If my relatives in the village now, if they know that I'm positive, what are they going to think about me? If the people around me at church, if they discover that I'm positive, what are they going to think about me? I was also fearing death, that if I die today, my husband is sick and is not waking. Who is going to look after my children? I, mean, 
I think for me, the the big, the most interesting thing was just the change. You know, the change in six years from going to a place where basically the the situation was pretty desperate. I mean, it, it's still a really tough situation, and and still the like infection rates are ridiculously high, and there, you know, it's HIV is not going anywhere. But you know, the sort of looking at somebody who six years ago would have had a sort of life span from that point on of between one and five years. And then you look at the sort of Lazarus effect um, of suddenly giving someone antiretrovirals and they could be living for another 20 to 30 years. That has a huge impact on the way that people see themselves and see their situation. Everybody in the West were like, oh, Africa's so disorganized, you can't give them these drugs because they won't, they'll just go to waste, they won't be able to like, actually use them. That was complete bunk. And when, when you've got a life-saving pill, you figure out how to refrigerate it, even if you don't have a refrigerator. You, you figure out ways so that you, even if it means you have to walk for nine hours there and back every week you know, to the clinic to pick up your ARVs, it's like, you know, it's ridiculous that, that it's kind of insulting that the West would say that. So, And that that was, you know, it was nice to see that positive change. You can find more information about this mission and other Crowley trips at CrowleyProgram.org. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. You can also listen to the show in our audio archives, which are also located on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.